Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with football physiologist Aspatar Richard Aikenhead. Thanks for tuning in to episode 97 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today's episode came off the back of reading an article recently, which I think was published a couple months ago uh, on scienceforsport.com, just around GPS uh, and the reliability and validity of of certain measures and, and the technology as a whole, really. So it was good to get an expert on, and Richard probably won't appreciate me saying um giving him the expert tag but definitely an expert in the area so it was great to get his his take on on the kind of points that were raised in that article so the first half of the the episode kind of concentrates on that on the on the technology side of things and then the 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 second half uh, gets into a bit more depth in in the in its use in rehab which is obviously an area of uh, of interest for richard so just before we get into the the chat we have a uh, sponsor, which is Coach Me Plus for today. So massive thanks to them guys. And they're just going to provide a two or three minute segment, which is going to focus around the communication between technical coaches and sports scientists, especially when it comes to the uh, the purchasing and acquiring of of technology, which is quite pertinent in this uh, in this chat with Richard. So I hope you enjoy the little segment with Coach Me Plus. Uh, and I'm sure you'll get tons out of uh, out of the episode, of Richard. Um, so, hope you enjoyed both chats, and I will speak to you soon. In this segment, we're going to talk about having open dialogue with your sport coach as a practitioner, and. With respect to open dialogue, I mean communicating with your coach things like data visualization, goals of collecting your data, hardware that you think would be a good investment. I'm really going to focus on the data visualization side of things, Uh, but I will say that investing on hardware uh, certainly uh, has many merits. There's tons of benefits to GPS, to heart rate, to heart rate variability, to um, velocity-based training tools. All those are fantastic tools uh, as a practitioner that we have uh, to offer our athletes uh, in order to push the envelope. Uh, One of the things I've seen with respect to investing in hardware is not keeping the coach kind of in sync or in tune with why it would be a good investment. Um, It's just, uh, you know, hey, this is how much it's going to cost. Can we do it? And that's where it stays. Um, so having open dialogue with your coach with respect to, hey, this is how X, Y, or Z hardware platform could assist us with our team uh, is really critical. On the other side of that coin is visualizing your data with your coach and having dialogue about your visualization with your data. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to go around and see a lot of different teams. And uh, one of the things that I've seen previously and I've observed is that a lot of times as practitioners, we just throw reports on coaches' desks. We don't do a good job of explaining what the data means, or we don't have any respect to how that coach might be best at learning. And when I say that, some coaches um, are good with tables. Some coaches prefer reading tables. 
Uh, some coaches probably don't have a ton of practice looking at data, so they haven't visual seen a lot of data visualization, even with respect to um, what we might think is simple with bar charts and bar charts and line graphs and um, moving average lines and um, radar plots and things like that. Um, some coaches just don't have enough experience with that, and that's okay. But it's really important to have that dialogue with your coach. Uh, some coaches want to see tables. Some like tables with conditional formatting, you know, your basic green, yellow, red tables, and some like and understand charts. But having that open dialogue with your coach is really important. It allows them to feel part of the process. Um, it allows them to have and feel like they have some ownership in with the data, and it helps them have buy-in uh, instead of just throwing it on their desk and saying, you know, this is what we should do for the intervention. Um, it helps them to think through the whole process and um, have some ownership and buy-in with what you're doing as with respect to all your data. Hope that helps. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure of speaking to Richard Aikenhead, who is the f football physiologist at Aspatar. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you here, mate, and uh, squeeze me in while, you, while you're back home and got a lot of other things on your mind. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, just a few things. Yeah. So do you want to give us a little bit of information on, on who you are and, and maybe a little bit about what you're doing and, and your current role? Yeah, so um, I suppose it's probably better working working backwards. So at the moment, uh, I'm in Qatar with Aspatar um, as a physiologist with a national sports medicine program working in football. Uh, it's coming up to around two years that I've been there now. And prior to that, I was at uh, Newcastle United with Jamie Harley and uh, Simon Tweddle and others, um, where I spent four and a half it was it spanned five seasons really um as i started i was the under 21 sports scientist whilst i was also doing my phd as well um prior to that i had a, a stint at U, uh, northumbria university as a research assistant uh, working in the labs there doing some middle distance and endurance um running work with the, the physiologists and the biomechanists there um and prior to that, my undergrad, which was also at Northumbria University, with a few stints as, uh, as an intern thrown in here, there, and, and everywhere, really, yeah. um, at, the, at the EIS and a few other places. So you've done your PhD, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, finished, I finished that a couple of years ago, yeah. Okay. So what's your, just going into a couple of the... Um a couple of the topics that we kind of went back and forth with was just your kind of current research area. Um, just want to tell us a little bit about firstly, what, what that is and yeah. why that's become a, an interest of yours. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my PhD was in, in collaboration with Newcastle United and Northumbria university. And uh, it was basically to go in there and, observe and, and find out what's going on and and it almost formed its own its own path really in terms of looking at how we monitor training loads and and everything else so it was a lot of it was concerned with 
the input or the the training dose, if you like, you know, what the guys did out on the field. Um, and what became quickly apparent is that in that environment, which is kind of a highly time constrained environment, um, we don't have so much to go on in terms of outcome measures or the response of players, which I'm sure is something that resonates with all the practitioners um, that are currently out there doing that work as well. Um, so within my PhD, I was kind of touching on that a little bit, but I never really had time to go into it in, in detail. Um, so afterwards, once I got to, uh, once I got to Qatar and Aspatar, then that was really still the main thing that I wanted to tackle in terms of can we, can we find some valid and reliable and, uh, of course, useful outcome measure that is feasible in the applied environment. So we know that a lot of guys, they, they take their subjective um, questionnaires and their wellness and, and things like that using a lot of different uh, mediums like the, the iPads and on the players' iPhones. But we also know that in that environment where there are financial incentives to play, there's also a big, big incentive uh, for responder bias basically. So if you have time to develop relationships with players and they've been educated and they understand the basically the benefits of, of them responding accurately, then you've got a better chance of, of recording accurate data. Uh, but in the Premier League and, and other leagues, of course, as well, then there's usually quite a high turnover of players. Um, you have foreign players some players that have not been accustomed to, to this type of um, these type of measurements before and so you can't generalize that you will have accurate data across your whole squad which was something that I was I was very aware of um, and the other side of things of course as well is is the time constraint you don't want to be the the busy sports scientist asking people to do this and and cashing in all your favors with a with a coach basically trying to you know can I do this jump test can I do this test can I do this test um so there was a few things that I noticed during my PhD was um and this is this is sort of anecdotal really from a almost a coaching perspective a lot of guys I know use uh you know, like a, a sub-maximal run at various stages in the week. So whether that's the first five minutes of a yo-yo test or uh, their own in-house protocol. Um, um, I did this with the under-21s for a period of 12 or 14 weeks on the bounce. Um, and I was, initially I was collecting a heart rate data. I was looking at the heart rate response to sub-maximal exercise, which wasn't fantastic in Newcastle when uh, the the preseason starts off around 28 degrees and then by the time you get through February and January it's sort of 4 degrees so how are you controlling for that um, anyway so I started to have a look into some of the accelerometer stuff um, and at the time I didn't even know what an accelerometer was I knew there was one uh, within the catapult GPS systems that we were using I didn't really know what it did um, I started to, to look around that um, but even from just watching the players, I could tell that they were almost split down the middle in how they responded after a match. And so what I was seeing was that we had the, the central midfield uh, type of player the, with the, the big aerobic engine who generally became a lot more compliant um, when they were running. So they're you know, spongy, basically, mm -hmm. to look at. Um and that was something that was clear just from, from observing them run. And then we had the guys, you know, you, you, your faster, more powerful guys, your wingers and your fullbacks who tended to become a lot stiffer and 
it, it looked to me that they were shortening their stride, whether that was because of um, soreness and uh, reduced flexibility or I, I didn't know what it was, but they just seemed to be sort of bouncing along a lot more, a lot more vertical oscillation. So I, I started to look into that a little bit, um, collected some some decent data and then the studies headed off in a, in a different direction uh, due to the results of a, of a previous study so I've, I've come back onto that really um, and I kind of recognised it is almost a way of is it somehow that we can covertly measure what is, what's going on so they almost don't realise what's happening um, that it's being measured is it, is it a, a convenience measure that we can take and you know then starting right from the beginning with that really in terms of the validity and reliability and sensitivity of all of that type of work um it's gone on a little bit from from that and now we're we're doing some research using sort of a, a multi-sensor array so we have the guys wearing four sensors one on each leg and one at the sacrum and one in the, the typical position of a gps unit um and there were there were a few there were a few research papers that pricked my interest in about this really and one's obviously the uh, the Cormac paper in two thousand and thirteen um, where they looked at some of the the play load output and sort of correlated that with neuromuscular fatigue uh, the work of Steve Barrett as well in that area and. And the work of um, Rob Gathicor, I don't know if you read that one, the, the sort of the counter-movement jump analysis. Um, and basically the concept is that when you measure performance, or if it's a sprint or a jump or, or anything else, then your body has a way of coming up with a movement solution to try and minimize any performance decrement. That's what we do. Um, and so the change in performance pre and post fatigue can actually be trivial and smaller than what we're able to detect with the test uh, what changes more is how we actually how we actually achieve that performance and and so that's where i believe that potentially we can we can start to look so in in the context of this submaximal run obviously there's no outcome measure you know it, it, it's not a time trial or anything like that but it's basically can we measure your running mechanics and and how you're achieving that because that's going to have a transfer as to how you move out on the field and how you move out on the field um, will dictate things like energy efficiency or your running economy and perhaps even your your risk of injury depending on if you're adjusting your normal movement pattern outside of your your bandwidth of tolerance essentially mm -hmm. so so in the data that you're have you gone through a data collection i mean i know you mentioned that you'd uh, you saw it with your own eyes with the sponginess and the stiffness. Yeah. Has that has that been uh, developed into an actual actual data yet? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We've we've done a couple of things. Um, John Fitzpatrick, who is uh, currently doing his PhD at Newcastle United as yeah. well, um, in, in in the academy, he's he's carrying on some of that work and uh, adding his superior intellect to that in comparison <laughs> to mine, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, Don't you do we, yourself an injustice, uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's 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 way above. Um, and then we've got uh, we're also doing some some studies out here as well. So it. it it's great that John's doing this work um, in the applied setting and then 
we're also looking at it in the in sort of a laboratory environment and almost uh, an intermediate environment where we're 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 able to control a lot of the variables very well, but it's not strictly a laboratory setting, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we try to come at it from a few different angles and uh, basically test it to its limits and, and see what it can and, and cannot tell us, essentially. Mm-hmm. So so what's that data looking like? And how are you – probably two questions there. Uh, yeah. What's data look like? And is it is it living up to what you um, – thought with you we saw with your eyes back at back at Newcastle and secondly um how can that or how is that uh, potentially going to impact um impact training yeah so in in terms of what the data looks like um and this is something that i i think is a is an overarching um issue in the sports science literature in, in terms of, and a lot of people have drawn attention to it as well, uh, in terms of reporting group responses. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at this data in terms of a group response, if you've got your 10 or 20 guys and you test at various time points, then you're not really going to see so much of a, a group interaction. You're not going to see a, a big group difference because of pretty much of, of what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, you have these two very uh, arbitrary subsets of, of players, if you like, um, within that population that respond differently. And ultimately, they cancel each other out a lot of the time. Um, so when you look on the on the group level, you won't see very much. But when we look on an individual level, which is what we're all interested in anyway, in, in terms of that within-player longitudinal monitoring, then yes, we see the sensitivity emerging. So first of all, from the reliability side of things, the reliability is very very good um you're looking at uh off the top of my head um cvs as a percentage on typical error of a sort of one to three percent um that's test retest and also between day Mm -hmm. uh, reliability as well which is which is good um when it comes to the the magnitude of of responses um i'm still toying with how to actually express that properly I'm, I'm i'm not so convinced on the smallest worthwhile change thing in this actual context in mm-hmm. this scenario um but if you were to look at it in the smallest worthwhile change then you're looking at changes in excess of you know uh, between four and eight times the smallest worthwhile change post fatigue so people change how they run um post fatigue which which we know uh one of the important things to consider with this is that with a submaximal protocol we do it in a shuttle format um so you know they just run back and forth between uh cones spaced 20 meters apart at a set speed of 12 kilometers an hour um in our protocol we've toyed around with a few different speeds and we've, we've stuck with 12 so far um and the importance of that is generally during fatigue, you know, if, if, if you look at some of the work in sprinting or high speed running, when you fatigue, then you change your speed and, and all of the other factors, the stride variables change a lot to do with uh, the change in speed, which is, of course, determined by the change in force generating capacity. But by sticking with a, a constant speed, then this allows you to essentially control that aspect of it and, and pick out the differences a little more clearly. Um, 
However, there's only been, I think there's only been two papers published in this type of area. Uh, one is, forgive me if I get the name wrong, I think it's Padulo, um, okay. in IJS, IJSM. Um, and he had some football players and, and they ran at 95% of maximal aerobic speed for five minutes, 20 meter shuttle test. And there were huge changes in their, in their stride variables. Um, but we need more data, essentially. Uh, we need more data to be able to look at what the magnitude of change, what can we expect? Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, even if it's huge, uh, getting onto your second point, you know, what does that even mean? <laughs> well, what does, what does, so what? Like it's that so what thing. Um, what, what does it mean? That's just a, a part football players have always played games. They've always fatigued. And if this is how they fatigue, then that's what's always happened. So, so what? Um, the question I guess comes is, is that it, it gives you a little, um, a little bit extra in the toolbox to see how people are, are changing. Um, and what the the temporal relationship is of that effective fatigue. So you might have some guys who recover to within their their baseline plus or minus their normal variation uh, within 24 hours, or you know, other guys might take up to 72 hours. That's going to change as you progress through the season. That's going to change depending on how uh, recently they've come back from a, an injury, for example. Um, and so I think it allows us to, it gives us another option, basically, um, of something to measure in, in quite a covert way that if it, if it does prove to be valid and reliable, um, then I think that that could be a real, a real go in a team sport environment because essentially you can test your full squad within five minutes. Um, if they're doing a five-minute submaximal run, everyone's on the line together. If you wish to do it that way, they do it. Um, and because of the because of the, the variables that you're collecting, um, then a lot of that data is available in real time. And so you can you can basically have it set up as a as a warming system to be able to say, okay, this guy is outside of his normal threshold by this this and at all or they're not so it just gives you a little bit more information to help in that decision making process uh, we've, we've still got an awfully long way to go to be honest in, in terms of being able to get to the point where we can make uh, meaningful decisions based on that but I, I, I think it's a promising area mm-hmm. so my next point firstly I apologise for dragging it back down to kind of my level but there's uh, I read an article t- I read an article today about um about kind of wearable technology and and specifically GPS, and yep. the, the reason I, the reason I mention it is because it, it seemed to resonate that there is still obviously people out there who are questioning the validity and the reliability and the, the usability of this technology. Yeah, I just like you to kind of give your opinion on on. I know it's a it's a huge it's a huge subject and a huge area, but how you've um, you know that the evidence that you've got for its for its use and applied. In the applied world, in terms of the GPS side of it, or in, the yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the article went into uh, the GPS um, firstly, and the, the yeah. accelerometers um, second. But I mean, to touch on the GPS would be fantastic yeah. because people know it as GPS. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I I went ahead and uh, I I've read something similar as well. Um, 
And I think that, first of all, uh, that's something that we have to keep doing. That's something that we have to keep questioning all of the time um, and not kind of rest on our laurels and accept things as being what they say on the box or what the manufacturer wants us to believe they are, essentially. Um, when it comes to the GPS, then in general, we know, obviously, that um, the higher speed or higher, more sort of brief, intense actions tend to be underreported and underestimated. And that is an issue in football with the amount of accelerations, decelerations that that go on. So we always have to bear that in mind. Um, it would be fantastic if they were more accurate. Um, the more studies that come out, it just helps form, uh, it helps us form more of a comprehensive understanding of what the limitations actually are. Um, and I think that sometimes gets a bad press the validity and reliability studies, but because the technology is progressing so quickly, it's important that we keep doing it and, and we keep going and we keep updating our understanding of, of exactly what they can do and what they can't. Um, I tried to sort of look into the the effects of acceleration, basically, or, or how accurate um, the units that we were using at the time are for measuring accelerations and decelerations. And I had uh, I had this unbelievable setup planned in my head. It looked a bit like the the board game Mousetrap. It was just all of this yes. stuff going on. <laughs> no, it was that ridiculous. sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was ridiculous, man. It was never never going to happen. Um, so in the end, we kind of settled on on somewhat of a compromise, and and the study was, of course, limited as a result of that. But what it what it did allow us to do, we used the two thousand hertz laser and um, sort of a, a manual rail system so that we could ensure the trajectory of the unit. Um, what it allowed us to do is get a bit more of an understanding of, of what's happening, and we know that these accelerations and decelerations are, <coughs> excuse me, are of physiological importance, and of course of uh, have a performance relevance as well. Um, but we know that we're not able to to measure them accurately, and so what that ends up doing is it restricts us from being able to do anything more than make sort of general observations on those types of things. So, in my experience, I think it's fine in in terms of profiling your drills and and things like that. Generally, when you when you're able to collect a lot of data and, and keep adding that to it, um, when it comes down to getting into the real nitty-gritty in the details of it. Uh, I don't think it allows us to, to fully do that yet. Um, so I think that's where the that's where the GPS stuff is at the moment, still progressing, of course. Um, and I think that as a, as a community as well, the practitioners, you know, we have a lot to offer feedback uh, to the manufacturers. I know that some manufacturers are more open than others, and people decry the whole... Uh, the sort of black box type of setup where you don't know what's in what's inside of the unit, you don't know where the metrics are coming from or how they're calculated, their validity and reliability. And I think people are as as consumers more than anything else as well are starting to say, you know, we, we don't really have to put up with that. Um we're gonna go ahead and investigate things ourselves. It'll come out in the wash. So I, I think we need to need to carry on with that. Um in terms of being able to measure what we want them to measure, I think that the accelerometers are a lot more valid um, at being able to do that. Obviously, it depends, again, on the, on the specification of the hardware and, and the software and the algorithms that's used as well. So there's, there's still a lot to 
to consider there. But generally, um, for measuring what the measure in terms of GPS measures, the, the locomotion accelerations measure the accelerations of the segment of the body that it's attached to, then I think the accelerometers are generally more valid and reliable for sure. So with more kind of consumer units coming on the market that are focusing on the GPS side of things rather than the accelerometer, what what are the um, the metrics that we can be confident in um, in using to, to make decisions? Yeah, I, I think it's um, obviously the the very vague general ones. <laughs> yeah, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, your total distance and your distance covered over certain um, whether they're sort of relative or arbitrary speed thresholds, but the the biggest thresholds is obviously as you narrow down those velocity bands, then you open yourself up to more error, basically <clears throat> in, in percentage terms. So it's better to to try and stay general if possible, um, and you can still gain quite a lot of insight into that. Uh, so whether that's deciding to look at um, your your intensity in, in terms of meters per minute so it, it's not just taking into consideration the variables it's obviously how you treat the data as well and uh the short technical note by matthew varley a few years ago um you know when he was saying let's not just go by averages that we're measuring in terms of 45 minute averages or 90 minute or 15 we need to kind of delve into the data a little bit more and see what's going on almost on a minute by minute basis um so even with fairly general variables there's still a lot that you can do to try and understand the demands of the game and understand the demands of training within that um when it comes to the acceleration stuff um it got to the point where after the validation work and the reliability work um i basically and, and, and it was arbitrarily it was arbitrary as well but I stuck with measuring accelerations over two meters a second squared, and, and that was it. So I measured everything over that, um, and that I drew that line in the sand. It was it was partly based on the data that I collected. It was based on some of the accelerations and decelerations that I'd measured in the players with the laser, um, and, and and a couple of other things as well. But again, there's there's certainly some subjectiveness on, on for my side of things on on sticking with that two meters a second square because th there's a lot of things that matter obviously the initial velocity that you uh go into that you start from with that acceleration as you as your initial velocity increases your acceleration capacity decreases so a one meter per second acceleration if you're starting from quite a high initial velocity could still be maximal um, whereas a one meter second acceleration from a from a standing start is nothing. Um, so there, there are lots of different facets to the problem, and I, I do feel that we are inching along in in terms of the progress, and, and we, we keep going, and hopefully people keep asking the right questions and, and doing that work to increase our understanding. So we're just going to take a quick break in the transition between uh, Richard chatting about GPS and the technology itself, and. And the, the rehab side of things, which is going to come up in uh, in the second half of the podcast. So there's an article that me and Richard both spoke about uh, in, at the start of the episode. So if you're interested in, in having a read of that, it was at scienceforsport.com. 
and I think there's a tab for GPS or technology or something. It's it's in there somewhere, uh, and I think it was probably the start of the year, maybe February or March time. But I think this this area will be a really exciting one over the next couple of years, and just seeing where it goes and how it evolves, and and uh, especially on the kind of prosumer side of things, the likes of Playtech uh, entering the market and doing really really well. So just before I let you get back into part two with Richard, I uh, just want to say a massive thanks to both Val Performance, uh, making the Nordboard, and Coach Me Plus, who provided the little segment at the start, which I hope you enjoyed. So I hope you enjoyed the second half with Richard, uh, and I'll let you get back to it. So I just want to move on a little bit to to um, kind of rehab focus. Uh, do you just want to tell us a little bit about how you... Um, how you use, I'll use GPS again as the kind of global term, but I think we all know what we're kind of getting at. Yeah. Um, GPS for, for play management and, and rehab. Yeah. Yeah. So the rehab one, um, the rehab one's an interesting one. So I, it, I guess that for most of the guys I spoke to, I, th- I think a lot of people do the same thing in terms of, you know, forming your profile of that player's typical activity patterns if you like in terms of their their typical training outputs in certain games a lot of coaches have their go-to drills or their go-to sessions that they do at predictable times of the week and uh, across the season you have the chance to collect a lot of data on that player so you you understand what level they're at Um, you have their, their match data as well from some people might be using the, the GPS um, whether that's valid inside of the stadium not too sure. Although they might be just using the the Remisco or the, the Prozone stuff. But the same concept applies in, in that you you form a profile of the of the player. What I think is important to to go into is that is that detail on almost a thirty second or a one minute um time period and apply that to the full to the full training session for a few training sessions and the full game just so that you can understand um <clears throat> What uh, Tim Knox, I think it was, who no, it's not Tim Knox, it's Tim Gavitt. Getting my Tims mixed up. <laughs> uh, um, Tim Gavitt refers to as uh, the worst case scenario. So, what is that player going to be expected to do? Um, then you've got a few contextual factors, I think, to kind of sprinkle on the top. And what I have noticed is that a lot of the time during rehab, at the end, at the end stage conditioning players will typically feel like they are the fittest they've ever been. You know, they want to get back to training. They want to get back involved and they've pushed themselves and they've, they've worked hard. And of course they've received uh, a tailored response. They haven't been in team training, which everyone gets pretty much the same dose. They've had everything tailored to them. So quite typically they're on top of the world and from, from a fitness point of view, um, now, when it when it comes to getting back into team training, then they also have the increased motivation to try and impress the gaffer, <laughs> remind <laughs> r- remind him, you know, remember me, I can do a job for you on the field, and and they want to make an impression on their teammates. You know, maybe another player has come in to to replace him, and he's been playing well. So ultimately, what that ends up is is they are usually flying around a lot more than normal. Um, so you have to remember that your profile that you formed pre-injury. Um, isn't necessarily going to be their ceiling of where they will be when you bring them back. Um, so typically using that profile 
what we've observed is that you you might end up with guys pushing themselves another 15 20% on top of that normal profile because when you're measuring them longitudinally like that they have a lot of things in their mind you know they whether it's a, a subconscious pacing strategy getting themselves from one game to the next or, or whatever it might be um so there are lots of different factors to to take into consideration but essentially um towards end stage conditioning which is typically where i become more involved is you want to have the player um have, have ticked certain things off the list and i don't really, i don't really like that term to be honest ticking things off the list because i i, I don't like the thought of kind of chasing numbers mm-hmm. almost um but it kind of serves a purpose to, to illustrate the point so it will would typically be achieving near maximum speed typically over 95 percent of the the maximum on a number of occasions um fulfilling a intensity um session so that's whether that's sort of one or two minute bouts up around their 95 to 100 uh, percent intensity work rate so in a game typically they might average somewhere um gone off the top of my head you know somewhere around 120 meters a minute or, or something like that on, on average and obviously we know that that's uh reflective of the intermittent nature of the game. So actually in the in the higher intensity periods in the 30 second or the one minute blocks, they could be approaching somewhere near 300 meters in a minute. Um, and of course that is then made up of all of the various actions that we're familiar with, the jumping, the passing, the, the sprints, the accelerations, decelerations, turns, all of that type of stuff. Um, and this is where it gets a little tricky because it's uh it's very easy to fall into almost a reductionist mentality and thinking that we just have to have to sprinkle in a little bit of this intensity this number of accelerations and decelerations this amount of this um but when it's all put together it's very very different from the sum of all of the parts um and we have to we always have to build build that in there and one of the things that probably more recently that I've realized the value of um, listening to some of my sort of mentors and some of the guys that I go to for advice is is really getting as much input from the player as possible in that process. So what I typically tend to do is uh, I have an idea of this profile in my head from, from going through the data, um, but then we'll go back to the player. And uh, in this instance, if it's a, if it's a fullback, and we'll say, right, okay, what are the most demanding and taxing parts of, of your game? You know, call upon specific examples if you want to. So um, it might be that they've been up against a winger who has, for want of a better term, pulled his pants down for 90 minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Robin. Uh... <laughs> and he might say, you know what, this guy, he, he, he had me and he ran me for 90 minutes and I was dying. And you're like, right, okay. So let's have a look into that. And you work with a performance analysis guy and you maybe reconstruct or simulate a few things and you get the player involved and maybe get some younger guys involved to, to be those, those dummy attackers. And you start to, you start to build the drills and some of the end stage conditioning in, in a way that has a lot more ecological validity. Um, the player tends to buy into it a lot more as well. And, 
then the GPS data and everything that, that you're collecting acts as confirmation, basically, or not. So it might be that you do this drill, you then have a look at it either in real time on your phone or whatever out on the pitch or process it afterwards. And you've had an idea in your head of, of what you want to hit the targets, the numbers that you want to achieve. Did it do it? Yes or no? All right, can we, can we tailor that a little bit? Um, so I, I tend to use the GPS side of things a lot more for, uh, for feedback rather than for actually really sort of chasing those numbers and, and pinning them down. Um, like I said, there are things that I like to, I like to do when it comes to the, the high speed work. Then sometimes there's an interesting trade off between what a player believes, um, they've done and, and, and what they've actually done. So that's always interesting to, to have a look at. Um, but it, yeah, it, it tends, I tend to use it a lot more for confirmation than anything else. Another thing you mentioned when we um, we were kind of having a little chat about about things to discuss was was creating the right environment for for rehab and um, yeah. using constraints and, and context to to aid yeah. in that. You just yeah. want to talk to us a little bit about what you what you meant by that? Yeah, so um, I work with a guy called uh, Darren Paul. I'm, I'm not sure if you know him at Aspatar. He spent a little bit of time at uh, at Middlesbrough at Teesside Union and then Southampton Uni. And one of Darren's areas is agility. Um, I think he has a review in Sports Med, which was out a few months ago, which was a, a very good review on, on agility training. Um, and he, I, I share an office with him. Um, and when we're not playing head tennis over the desk at lunchtime, then he's <laughs> usually uh, chewing my ear off about agility and um, the, you know, stimulus response compatibility and, and all of these different types of things and, and constraints and uh, complexity and so we, we get into these discussions and and it's something that actually when I'm coaching it, it, it's things that you do build into your session but perhaps you, you almost didn't understand why um, or I didn't understand why as much and, and understanding a little bit more in that um, I'm sure we've all coached people and perhaps even something as, as simple as uh, a 90 degree cut or something like that or a 45 degree cut and if you're doing a change of direction drill style coaching then that person is able to replicate it you know, fantastically well 99 times out of 100 um, you add a constraint in there which in in our context of, of team sports is typically time. You know, you have to do things quickly in a, in a short space of time. Um, you put a time pressure on them and that technique that you thought that you had nailed down is nowhere to be seen. And you're left scratching your head and you're thinking, what is that? What, what, what's happening here? Like this guy can do all of this. He can do it at these different speeds. He can do it at these different cutting angles and all. But you add, um, some constraints in there. So typically, like I said, time, or it might be in response to a human rather than a whistle or a light or, or something like that. So you, you make the, they make the stimulus uh, more valid. It just goes out the window. So applying that to, to rehab basically is that a lot of the time, I think we like to see very neat drills where everything looks nice and it looks planned um, and it's all pretty and we've got our cones out and, and everything else. But I think what I was doing is I was I was robbing the player, robbing the athlete of the chance to actually practice or train um, 
how they would in the real world, in, in that real world team scenario. So the thing that I mentioned about getting their feedback and recreating the drills based on their experiences and, and their feedback, that's one part of that. Because a lot of the time they'll say, you know what, when this guy runs at me with speed and if he takes me on the left side, then that's fine. But if I turn over the, the other side, then I, I really struggle with that. And that might be something you've, you've completely missed as a practitioner. You've got 30 players to look after. And did you spot that deal or did you not? Well, the information's there. You just have to, you just have to get it from the player and build that relationship. Um, some of the other things is that, you know, we talked about fatigue before. Um, and do we always want the player training when they're coming back from an injury? Do you always want them training fresh? Because we know, again, the movement strategy changes under fatigue. So they need to be experiencing this. We need to give them different cognitive demands to be taken. And if you've got a central defender who's got one eye on a winger streaking down, uh, streaking down the wing over his right shoulder because the fullback's out of position and the ball's coming over from the left side and he's got lots of different things to be thinking about, then how does that affect how he moves? And you have to try and build some of these things in. Um, so that you you take that validity box almost of, of what you're doing and you're preparing the player. And again, I'm sure we've all seen when a when a player comes back from an injury, they go back into that uh, one of those first team training sessions. They go into that small sided game and they're flying around like a lunatic, <laughs> you know. A lot of the time because you know they've got that increased fitness that we've talked about. They want to make an impression and everything else, but they haven't been involved in that level of decision making up until that point. And they have no idea. And they'll often come out and describe it as, as feeling rusty or feeling off the pace. And uh, so they have the machinery. They've got the, they've got the machinery to get about. But, you know, or the Formula One cars, as we sometimes say, they've got the car, but the driver's not in the seat <laughs> and they don't, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. Um, and so we, we try and create that, that environment. So when I talk about the environment, I mean, we try and create those different types of, um, those constraints again um, by altering things and sometimes it doesn't look so pretty and sometimes it you know you almost get worried about if if, if the, the gaffer comes over and sees us doing this is he going to think that we're messing around and just <laughs> wasting time um, but the players certainly appreciate it a lot more and they seem to they seem to really really get into it and, and get into that process and they own the they they, they own the, the rehab process a lot more um in those situations as well. And that's not just for the on field stuff, you know, it, it applies to some of the off field work as well. And again, uh Darren actually builds a lot of this stuff into his into his core work, into his core training with uh, the players that he works with as well. Um which is which is quite interesting. Very interesting. So one thing I'm one thing I'm just conscious of time, but I just want to touch on one thing um, before I let you go, and that was coaching in a, in a different country. Obviously, yeah. there's a um, a thick um, I won't say Geordie accent because that'd kill you. Um, <laughs> a thick Malcolm accent um, going over to Qatar. How do you how do you deal with that? And um, yeah, get just getting that that kind of understanding across in a, in a different language and a, a different language that is difficult to understand for English people. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, 
without a doubt, it's a challenge. Um, to be honest, if you speak to the people that I've worked with before, even in England, they'll tell you it was a challenge then. So I, I really feel for these Qatari guys. <laughs> but um, no, it's it's something that I've enjoyed because it's not even just a language thing. It's it, it, it's not so much as, as just what you say, it's how you say it as well. Um, there's a lot more emotional intelligence needed and, and cultural awareness. Um, when it does come down to the language thing, then yeah, you do find yourself uh, communicating a lot more, um, what's the word? Graphically, maybe. I, yeah, I don't know. You know, you don't want the big guys that just shouts louder and. The- <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's the old man on holiday. That. <laughs> no, so yeah, I mean, within the clubs that we go in, actually, the level of English is is generally very good. Um, but when it comes into some of the so into some of the coaching practices, then some of the more unusual words then they're not accustomed to so then it comes down perhaps to physical demonstrations and and things like that so you end up relying a lot more on on those types of things and and obviously the uh, what everyone does if if there are a few players in the squad that typically are a good english or you're able to communicate with a better then you try and utilize those guys to, to help you along the way, as well as, of course, trying to trying to pick up some Arabic as you go as well um, and trying to make an effort from your side. Uh, and then, like I touched on with the with the cultural awareness side of things, there are there are certain ways that you just need to behave and uh, and, and act. And um, with with the coaches I work with, then. They're probably they're probably from from seven or eight different nationalities sort of all around the world, and I have to diversify my communication approach a lot. Really, um, there is one English guy that I two English guys actually that I work with, and so that is that's fine. Um, some of the other guys, I really have to. I have to make an effort from my side, and I <laughs> I slow down when I'm when I'm talking and we sit down and we, we take our time. Um, we have a coffee and, and we just sit down and that's part of the, the wider relationship building side of things. Um, because you know, if you haven't got that relationship to start with, then you've got no chance. Uh, and I, I poke a good amount of fun on myself as well <laughs> with that side of things. And some of the lads have a, have a laugh at my expense, which I, which I don't mind at all. But one of the things it, it has done, is you kind of you come home from a session or even within the session and you're just sitting there thinking about these things that that perhaps you even took for granted before and just being able to get that message across um and being able to get it across in a way that's that's absorbed um because part of our role as well is is education so whether that's speaking and working with the, the qfa or with individual clubs then a lot of the time you make your presentation. Um, I have our Arabic colleagues as well who, who help with, with translations, but you have to prepare yourself for the instances that they're, they're not always going to be there, basically. So it, my presentations have changed, even on that level, uh, tend to be a lot a lot more clarity in there, a lot more pictures. <laughs> <laughs> limit, uh, limit how much I have to talk. Um, yeah, so it, it's certainly been a challenge and, and one that I've tried sort of 
really, really go out and, and get the most the most out of, really, because essentially you never know where you're going to end up and, and who you're going to end up working with. Uh, so I see that as an opportunity to try and upskill a little bit, really. Hmm. Interesting. So, again, um very conscious of time, but there's one thing I just want to want to ask you before we go. Um, in terms of just going back to what we discussed at the start, in terms of um, kind of hardware and software, yeah. what would be the one thing that would, um, if you could change it to make your or develop it to make your job easier, what would it be in terms of the in terms of the te- technology itself? Oof. Um... Not, honest, maybe I'm, not change, but maybe just clarity on certain a certain thing, or I don't know. Yeah, what I'm, would make your I'm, job easier. I'm I'm working with um, I'm working a lot with some accelerometers at the moment, and um, I think it I think it will happen um, eventually. I, I think basically what you want is you want accurate data quickly. Essentially, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a which which is a big a big thing to say because again it comes down to that that pressure cooker environment of that uh, in 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 the real world in the applied world and you want to be able to to get data quickly not to have to sit and download everything um, run it through MATLAB script or Excel analysis or whatever it might be so I guess it would be some quite nifty online algorithms to tell you what you wanted uh, because some of the accelerometer stuff is quite um, is quite complicated and, and requires quite a lot of processing power so i'm lucky to be working with a with a matlab genius or two at the minute who is who's able to do all of this stuff uh for us but still it's post processing and you're downloading stuff and then you're looking at it and um and then making decisions retrospectively, essentially. Whereas if you have that that data in real time, I guess that would be that would certainly be a, a lot better. Um, so that one, and also I think in general, uh, companies engaging a lot more. I think with the practitioners, um, because I think that would really fast track a lot of the progress and development. Um, I know that some. Some have a bit of a track record of that at the minute, which is good. Uh, but I think they need to up their game a little bit uh, because ultimately the end user, these are the guys who are, first of all, they're, they're running into the, the, the problems. Um, they're the ones that have the questions to ask. And so they're the ones that really have the key to the solutions, essentially. Um, so and more engagement from, from the companies who are, you know, they're charging a lot of money for these things, uh, and I think they kind of owe it to the to the consumers, and the consumers are the ones that are promoting their products as well mm-hmm. by doing by doing research for them and and, uh, and and using their product, and they're happy enough to sit there and take photographs of the players wearing all of this stuff, but <laughs> sometimes not so happy to answer a question by your email. Yeah, hmm. and they're the ones that are putting the receiver upside down to get its work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of one or two people about it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I appreciate your time, Rich. But just before I let you go, um, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on, research-wise, applied-wise? Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't generally tend to have a lot to say. I'm just like that. Uh, just like a twi- Twitter stalker. Yeah, because yeah, nice. uh, everyone on there is a lot 
cleverer than I am have got far more interesting things to say than I am so I just kind of peep my head above every now and again but that's uh, at Rich Egginhead on Twitter um, and I try to put as much stuff up on ResearchGate uh-huh. as possible and, and share that you know when people request full text and things like that so I'm I'm on there as well um, and my email is uh, richard.egginhead at aspatar.com so if anyone wants to get in touch about any of the research, because uh, one of the things I'm, I'm keen to do is that I, I don't want the research to stay within sort of a, a lab environment or just to be for the purposes of a, of a research paper. Uh, I'm a practitioner and I want the things to, to to be implemented really if if they're appropriate. So anyone that's uh, potentially looking to collaborate on some, some applied work, I'm always happy to discuss discuss things like that excellent well i've put i've put your um your twitter handle and your research gate link on the on the site so people can get get in touch with that if they're uh if they're lazy oh, so um, thank you very much so again thanks for your time and um and we'll keep in touch definitely yeah absolutely all right pal thanks again cheers rob thank See you bye 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 Thanks a lot for tuning in and having listened to me and Richard Aikenhead chat around GPS and rehab. So, like I said in the in the episode, if you go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 97, there is uh, the link to Richard's ResearchGate page. So if you are interested in anything that he mentioned uh, research-wise, it's, it's all there for for a good reference point uh, and you can request any, to any, uh, any text from there. So just a massive thanks to both sponsors of the podcast today in Coach Me Plus and Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard. So we've got some really exciting guests coming up, um, finishing, well, not finishing, but uh, kind of culminating in episode 100, uh, which is really exciting from, a, uh, from my point of view. So hope you enjoyed the chat with Richard and I will speak to you next week. <laughs>